0: So we're going to wrap it up today with the fourth part of our four-part series. Um, And so we'll review a little bit before we uh, push forward. So we say, uh, we talk about grace a lot, right? We talk about this ideal of grace, but do we really understand what grace is? And more importantly, do we believe in what we talk about? Do we believe in the grace that we so speak about often in our churches? Do we really take to heart when we're dealing with this ideal of grace? And for me, what's also very important is do we show this grace in the world that we live in? Do we show and replicate the grace that we understand and know to the world around us? Do we proclaim it in our lives as strongly as we proclaim it in our words? So during the first week, we talked a little bit about, obviously, we talked about grace, and we kind of set the foundation of what grace is. But we also talked about the issue of our churches being filled with this idea of ungrace, right, the opposite of grace, and we tend to talk, we talked about how we tend to misuse the word of grace with all these pictures up here, I don't know if you guys remember, does anyone remember these pictures I showed like a month or two months ago or three months ago almost, right, it's been a while now, right, but we use the word grace so often in our society that in a sense we have become desensitized to the true meaning of the word. Right, Especially in our churches, we use this word grace all the time, and we should be offering this world grace, but often we shame them and show them ungrace more than grace. Right? The world that we live in is a world that is searching for grace. Right? But what do we as people and as a church have to offer them? Just as I said um about a veterinarian, right, a vet can tell a lot about a dog's owner simply by looking and observing the dog, I challenge you the first week to think about what does the world learn about God when they look at our churches, when they look at us, when they look at the followers here on earth, what do people learn about God? When the world looks at Christians, do they see grace or do they see ungrace? And then we talked about that first. We we talked about the parable of the workers and their unfair paychecks in Matthew 20. And we talked about how grace is not measured in a day's wage, but rather it is something that is simply gifted to us. Grace is unmerited favor. I don't know if I have this on the screen. No, not yet. Okay, grace is unmerited favor, an undeserved, unexpected gift from God to us. But on top of that, that we, we dealt with how grace is simply unfair, right? And it doesn't make sense. When we look at the parable of the workers, clearly, grace is not fair, right? Some worked all day, some worked very little, but at the end of the day, they all received the same amount of pay, right? And then we defined grace. And if anything, if you don't remember anything from any of the parts that I talked about, uh, remember this, right? Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love, right? If anything, this is all you need to remember, okay? And then I left you on a cliffhanger after this week, right? We know there's a problem of ungrace, and then the challenge became, how do we fix ungrace? How do we fix this? What's the solution? And then we talked about the remedy, which I believe um, is forgiveness, right? And we talked about how forgiveness is a very unnatural act, it's something that we aren't necessarily wired to do as human beings, and it makes us uncomfortable, frankly speaking. It's not the first thing that comes to our mind, and it's a, such an unnatural thing to do. Something that makes us so uncomfortable, we ask God, why in the world would you want us to do something like this? Why would you ask us to forgive? Right? And pretty much the straightforward and logical answer that I shared with you is because that is exactly what God is like, and that is exactly what God has done for you and I right God is a God who forgives and if we are to reflect the character of God and strive to be like that, then we should also forgive. right we talked about that parable of the unforgiving servant, right you guys remember that parable? Right? Because God has shown the forgiveness to us, how much more should we share that forgiveness to others right and then we discovered that forgiveness is a three-way process, right? It's not between two people. We also discovered that when we deny forgiveness to others, okay, and this is what's on the screen, right, in effect, we are deeming them unworthy of God's forgiveness, right? And essentially, and it's kind of weird, right, but divine forgiveness depends on whether or not we are willing to forgive others. That's so crazy if you think about it, right? So God initiates, and we are to reciprocate, right? God initiates, we are to reciprocate. And then I give you three reasons, and we're gonna just quickly go through these, through these. The three reasons I gave you that why we should forgive. Forgiveness can help the cycle of blame and pain, breaking the unhealthy chain of uh, ungrace. Forgiveness can loosen the strang- stranglehold of, the, of guilt and the perpetrator. And finally, forgiveness is the most beautiful form of showing grace to others. And then I ended it with a challenge for us to practice uh, and learn more about this culture of forgiveness and what that looks like in, in terms of grace, right? So that when we go out to our communities um, or our immediate world, or wherever we may be, we can slowly break these chains of ungrace and build a new culture of grace and forgiveness. Okay. So um, the last time I talked, uh, I talked about uh, kind of this or the details of why grace is so unfair, and I left you with two points, right? The first one is grace is for all, even the oddballs, and we're all all oddballs, but God loves us anyhow, right? This is like, I, I love this, right? That God's grace needs to be shown not only to some people, but everyone, right? All kinds of people, and that's our job and responsibility as Christians, right? To invite the unclean and to make them clean, right? To bring in the broken, and to make them whole, Jesus started this revolution of grace, and we are the ones that need to continue the revolution that He began. Right? And then the second thing I left you with was the risk of grace, and that is grace abuse. And genuine repentance is the solution to the abuse, to the abuse. Right? Um, but I didn't actually finish my point, and that's kind of what I wanted to. Um, to get on, to talk about what this loophole is about, right? And that'll transition to our final point uh, for this series, right? So there's a risk that we take when it comes to grace, right? We're going to look in uh, Romans, but in the first few chapters of the book of Romans, the best way to summarize what Paul is trying to say is, in one-liner, if we were to give it a one-liner, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Right? But then, after telling the Roman people of how miserable they were and all the faults that they carried, okay, in the next few chapters, it's interesting what, what Paul does. He tells of how grace wipes out any penalty that we face, right? He says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, right? So where there was sin, as it increased, grace increased all the more. This is wonderful, but this is where the loophole is, Right? Okay? Why be good if you know in advance that you will be forgiven? Have you guys ever thought this? What's the point of being good if we're going to be forgiven anyways? Why strive to be just as God wants when he simply accepts me just as I am? Are you guys seeing this loophole, right? We talk about grace and how grace is simply given, but then there's this huge loophole of why should I be good then? Because God says he's going to love me anyways. Right? Where sin increases, grace increases even more. So I can just go around sinning, right? No, Okay, no. that's, I'm not, that's not my point, right? Okay? If we know that God loves us for who we are, why in the world do we need to strive to be what God wants us to be? When God wants us to be something, why in the world do we have to do it if we already know God loves us? Okay? Why do we need to be good when we already know God will forgive us? So, this question haunted me, and maybe some of you guys are looking at me like, Pastor, like, really? Like, what does that mean? Like, what do we do now? I've trapped you in a corner, right? And for me, when I first thought of this question, I thought, wait, I don't know. What do, what do I do? I literally felt like I was trapped in a corner. But in chapter 6, which we read today, Paul straight up asks, he, he asks the question, he understands what's going on, right? He says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And then he says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? To both of these questions, Paul is very confident in his answer. And his answer is what? He says, by no means. Meaning, no way. Absolutely not. But why does he say this? Right? Paul notices this loophole before you even noticed it. Right? And He's not okay with it. And this means that we shouldn't be okay with this kind of grace abuse, right? So the heart of the question that Paul asks, right, is why be good? And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today because Paul uses three illustrations. He uses three analogies uh, to deal with this loophole problem that we have here, this thing called grace abuse, right? So, oh, so we already read that. Okay, so he uses three illustrations to deal with this loophole of grace abuse. The first one um it says Romans 6:1 to 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin, but how can we live in it any longer? Right? So the first illustration that he shares is this basic analogy of death versus life. Right? He contrasts death and life. As Christians, when we are baptized, we are to live a new life. Supposedly a life without sin, right? And Paul even says that the wages of sin is what? Death, right? And if baptism represents a burial and a resurrection, a resurrection into a new life with God, why should we be living in sin again? Why would one in their right mind choose sin or death over life? And some of you guys might be thinking, like, okay, of course. I mean, no one's perfect. It's not easy to avoid sin, right? I am a sinner. We're all sinners. We all fall into sin. And you're right. Paul's first illustration doesn't necessarily clean up the issue of grace abuse or fix the loophole problem, because sometimes sin doesn't smell like death, or doesn't make it, it doesn't like make you die instantly, right? When we sin or when we do wrong to someone, we don't die the next moment, right? So clearly, okay, Paul understands this. Yes, we as Christians sometimes often die to sin, but for some reason, it keeps popping back into our lives. See, Paul is a realist. He totally understands. He understands that this struggle and temptation is real. And we know because in the same chapter, Paul says, right, in chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, he says, count yourself dead to sin and do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He understands that. Now, there's a a Harvard biologist uh, by the name of Edward O. Wilson, um, and he performed a science experiment that helps uh, at least me understand Paul's first illustration better. Um... So actually, like yesterday, some of the kids were noticing I had like a like huge bandage on my right hand, uh, and they're like, "What happened?" And I was just telling them I got into a fight uh, with an ant, right? It was like this big, and I lost. And so my hand was like super swollen, like I couldn't grab anything. Uh, it was terrible. I've never been bit by an ant and had so much pain. But um, anyways, so this biologist talks about ants. So he's studying ants. He noticed that it took a few days, or that it took ants a few days to recognize one of their crumbled dead fellow ants, right? So he determined, okay, he, he was thinking about it, he was doing an experience with the ants, I, I would never do that, but I don't know why he was doing it, but he was doing that, but he determined that the ants didn't identify death simply by visual cues, but rather by smell, by scent. So when the dead ants started to decompose, other ants would come, Pick it up and carry it out of the nest to a waste like trash pile. Have you guys seen that? Like, like a dead ant and like a live ant is like carrying his like friend. Have you guys seen that? Okay, maybe you've seen that. And so, anyways, so this is what he was noticing. It wasn't when they were crushed and killed at the spot. It was after a while. He determined that it has to be the smell. There's something about the smell, right? And he was determined, Wilson was determined to discover and figure out what that scent or that smell was. And after many tries, uh, he determined it to be oleic, I I think that's how you say it, oleic acid, okay? And so if the ants smelled this acid, they would carry out the body of their dead fellow ant comrade, right? They would take the body and then dump it out, right? If it smelled anything else, they would ignore it. it. They didn't care, right? So their instinct of this acid was so strong, that if Wilson put the acid on something like a piece of paper, the ants instantly would go to that piece of paper, diligently quickly pick it up, and then dump it out, right? To the waste pot. Isn't that crazy? So in the final test, and this is kind of messed up, right? And more out of curiosity, he would put the acid on fellow ants that were still alive, right? And then sure enough, without doubt, guess what the living other ants did? They smelt it, they took their living ant, and threw them into the waste pot, right? While it was still alive, okay? So while this poor little ant that was thrown out into the waste pile is like struggling to get out and protest, right? It would clean itself off of this acid before returning to the rest of the ants. Because if they failed to remove any of that acid on their body, they ran the risk of being thrown into the trash pile again, right? Isn't that crazy? Okay, anyways. So <laughs> we may have died to sin, right? But it just somehow comes back to us and haunts us, right? Just like those ants, like the dead ant. Sin may be dead, but it stubbornly wiggles back into our lives. So immediately, Paul understands this. He sees this and like, okay, yeah. Sin is hard to get rid of. It's there. It lingers. It takes control of our lives. He understands this reality. So he jumps into his second illustration. Oh, sorry. Anyways, so second illustration. And he says in verse 17, um, he talks about this illustration of human slavery. He says in verse 17 that you used to be Slaves to sin, right? Sin is a slave master that controls us whether we like it or not, right? For many of us, sin kind of feels like slavery. In 21st century terms, it could be an addiction, right? We find ourselves losing our temper over certain things when things don't go our our own way. We resort to substances to become our getaway, to become our way of getting out for comfort, and it becomes our master. It overcomes our lives, okay? So Paul, he's, he's... Trying to battle this illustration. And then he goes into the third illustration, okay? And he likens our spiritual life to that of marriage. Now I know everyone here is not married. I'm not married myself, okay. Some of you are too young to be even thinking about marriage, but this illustration is not new in the Bible. Okay? We see the illustration of marriage time and time again over the Bible. The intensity and the desire and the want to spend our lives with a single individual reflects the passion that God feels towards us and God wanting that passion back in return. So far more than death, far more than slavery, the illustration of marriage provides a beautiful answer to the question. The principal question started with, why be good? But the reality, it's the wrong question. The question that we should be asking is why love? So if you've ever fallen in love, uh, then you will know what I'm talking about. If you've never fallen in love, then you'll fall in love one day, I promise, right? (laughs) So when you meet someone that you truly love, okay, think about the time when you met someone you really loved. Or for those that are, haven't fallen in love, something, something that you really loved. Right? Okay. There's this saying of going head over heels. Right? So I have a tendency to do that. When I find something that I love, I'm absolutely crazy about that thing. Okay? And that's not really, really a good thing. Right? But when you begin to love something, right, everything changes. Right? You look at the sunset and you're like, Oh, uh, it looks like her, or it looks like him, right? And then you're like eating like a meal. I'm like, wow, I want to eat this meal with this individual, or you're like looking at the plate and it's like, wow, it looks like her face, right? And you start seeing things like totally differently, like everything. Is that just me? Does anyone else do that, right? Okay. You hear a song on the radio and you think of that person, like you know when you fall in love, like, anyways. So when you truly fall in love with someone, you would do anything and everything for that individual. They become the world to you, so they say, okay. And like I said, it doesn't have to be a person. It could be something in your life. It could be a pet. It could be a movie. It could be a fake character. I don't know, whatever. You name it, right? This should help you understand why Paul is saying, by no means, like God forbid, right? To the response of the question of, shall we go on sinning, that grace may increase? Okay. Think about it this way. For, you, for people that are married, would you go on your wedding night? Okay. On your wedding, after you get married and you have wonderful time, you you know, you commit to this person. You wouldn't lay in bed thinking like, "All right, so who can I get with now?" Right? You wouldn't be thinking like, "Oh, what about that one person in high school? Like, I want to get back with that person." Right? You wouldn't be thinking about how far you could go with somebody else on the day that you got married. Right? God forbid. Right? And if it's not marriage, it's like. You know, I don't, I don't watch movies, but it's like Marvel or DC. It's like, if you're a Marvel fan, you're going to watch DC movies, like, how dare you? Like, what in the world are you thinking, right? Okay? God forbid. In the same way, if we approach God with this similar mindset, an attitude of, what can I get away with? Get, what can I get away with? Or this ideal of, how close can I get to the fire without getting burned? It kind of sounds silly, right? It sounds really silly, actually. It proves that we don't really understand and grasp what God already has in mind for us. Right? If we approach God with this mindset of, how far can I get with disobeying God? How far can I get with, with breaking the commandments? How far can I get with breaking my love relationship with God? If this is the mindset we, that we have... Then we have failed to understand what God has in mind for us. You see, God wants more than just a relationship. That's like one between a slave and a slave master. One that controls you with a whip, right? God isn't this tyrant boss that's micromanaging you as you work every day, right? God wants more than the closest of closest relationships. But see, what God wants, he doesn't want your performance, but God wants your heart. Okay? A husband doesn't do good works for his wife to earn credit or brownie points, right? Like, oh, let me put a sticker on the wall. Like, yes, I right? washed the dishes today. Oh, I cleaned the garage sticker on the wall. Right? Oh, if I just get 10 stickers, she'll cook my favorite meal. Like, no. Right? I'm sure husbands don't do that, right? I'm not a husband, so I wouldn't really know, right? Okay? But the reason why they would do these things is to express his love for her. Right? God wants to serve in the new way of the spirit. Not an obligation, but rather out of want and desire. That's what God is seeking in a relationship. The best reason to be good is to want to be good, right? Change on the inside requires a relationship, which requires love, right? This is why I always talk about this idea that God is love, because we fundamentally do not understand that principle, right? A person who truly loves God will be inclined to please God in all that they do, which is why the entire law, Jesus says this in, in the Gospels, will simplify to the single commandment of loving God, to love God, okay? If we truly understand and grasp the wonders of God's love for you and I, the question of what can I get, what can I get away with or how close can I get to the fire, okay, would never cross our minds. Rather, we would spend our lives... Trying to fathom and not abuse the grace that God gives us, okay? I talk about this a lot with uh, a lot of my Bible studies. To try to get them out of the legalistic mindset of church. But I always say, I'll give this illustration. I think this this is like my favorite illustration. So, let's just say we have, you know, I introduce someone brand new, right? If you're a guy, I introduce you to a girl. If you're a girl, I introduce you to this guy. And I tell you, okay, I want you to take this person out on a date. I want you to take this person and, you know, buy them a car. I want you to take this person, I want you to buy them everything they want. Go on a shopping spree, buy whatever they want. I want you to take care of them when they're sick. I want you to do everything for them. It's a brand new person. You've never met them. Right? You have no idea who they are. You're just like, why is Pastor Tim telling me to do this? Why should I be doing this? You maybe would do it, but if you were in your right mind, you'd be like, Pastor, like, no, I don't want to. Like, I don't know this person. I could care less about this person. But if you flip the story, right? If you got to know somebody that I introduced you to and you fell in love with that person, right? if you fell in love with that person, then you would want to take them on a date. You would want to take them shopping. You would want to do these things for them because you love them. Right? That is the scenario that we need to think about when it comes to our relationship with God. Right? It's not about following all the laws in order to love Him. It's to love Him so that we can follow the laws. Right? Okay. So the solution to this problem of grace abuse is to change the question and to realize that when we are truly understanding of God's love for each of us, there's no way we would look for ways to abuse that, but rather we would fall in love with it, fathom it, and to embrace it, right? So now uh, with that, uh, I want to end with uh, a few points as we wrap up grace um, or what's so amazing about grace. So thus far, so far we've talked about like grace and we talked about ungrace, uh, but grace, and you know, hopefully by now you guys really see how powerful and amazing it is. Um, and actually, I hope by the end of this sermon today, the question of what's so amazing about grace doesn't leave you with more questions, but rather like, wow, this is amazing. This is great, right? It encourages you, it motivates you. I hope that question really just sparks um, more energy and power in you all. So... Um, If we see that grace is so amazing, what I've talked about and what you've seen so far, if grace is so amazing, why do we as a church fail to show that? So the first point I wanna um, start with is, grace works from below. So it's a good question, right? Why does the church not show this wonderful, amazing grace? But I wanna change the question more appropriately to, why don't we as members, not necessarily as a church, uh, but why don't we as individuals show grace? I believe that change starts from the bottom, or not from the top down, but from the bottom up, right? If we want to see in our church more grace in our communities, in our immediate world, it doesn't necessarily start with the leaders of the church, right? And that includes me, right? But it starts with every individual in this room, right? So I don't know about you, when I um, I feel like Glendale has been fairly a large church for most. Of its uh, life, I'm sure there was a beginning where it was much smaller. Uh, but when I was up in Alaska, um, when I growing up in the Alaskan church, the youth group was like my my sisters and me. Right, I hated it. It was so boring. Right, you guys have like all your friends, you could see each other and stuff like that. But I absolutely dreaded it, and I would always complain. Why in the world does our church do nothing about this? Why do they let us miserably like Why do they miserably let me sit in a room with my sisters and call this church right? <laughs> I love my sisters, don't get me wrong, okay? But I would hate it. I would complain every single week. I'd be like, how come we don't have a youth pastor? How come we don't have a youth leader? Why, why don't we have any activities? Why do I always have to just come to church, sit there, and then go home, right? I would blame the church board. I would blame the pastor. I would blame my parents, right? But then I realized that it wasn't them that was gonna make that change, right? It had to be me. It had to start somewhere. And if they were going to do it, then I had to do something about it. I had to take action. And so I want you to remember, when you build a totem pole, you don't start from the top, you start from the bottom, right? You start from the bottom, you don't build something randomly in the air, right? So Jesus portrays this image, okay, of bottom up, right, quite well throughout his ministry. He portrays this kind of like secret force, right? If you think about it. Sheep among wolves, treasure hidden in the field, the tiniest seeds of the garden, The wheat growing among the tares, right? A pinch of yeast worked in the bread of dough, right? A sprinkling of salt on meat. If you think about all these movements that work within society, changing from the inside out, these small little things. You see, you don't need a bucket of salt to preserve a piece of meat. All you need is a little pinch of it. You see, Jesus did not leave an organized stampede of followers when he left this earth, right? He knew that a handful of salt would be more than enough to gradually work its way throughout the world. That band of 12 disciples, the legacy that Jesus left behind with, still carries on to this day. And it starts with you and me. So when we go around showing the church, the community, love, forgiveness, grace, then that's when we can start seeing the change. It might be a slow process. It might not show results immediately. But just like farming or growing something, things don't just grow overnight, right? There's a process and it takes time, but it begins with us as individuals, right? It's when we start to show it to one another. That's why grace seeps through the cracks in the wall. Grace spreads like wildfire. It only takes a little spark. Now, my final point uh, that I want to share is gravity versus grace. Uh, Simone Wheel, I'm probably butchering her name. Uh, this is her. Okay, 1909 uh, to 1943. Uh, so, how old was she when she died? Do you guys know? She was. She's pretty young. Thirty-three. Wait, thirty. Thirty-four. Right. She's thirty-four years old when she died. But does anyone know who she is? Anyone? Okay. So she's a French philosopher and she's an, uh, a political activist, right? She died at the age of 34, uh, and she chose to work on farms and factories in order to relate with the working class. This I respect people, leaders that do this kind of thing, right? So in order for her to relate with the working class, she chose to work on a farm. She chose to work in factories. Um, and then when Hitler's armies kind of rolled in into France, she escaped to join the Free French in London, where she died to tuberculosis, which... Uh, was made more complicated because she refused to eat uh, more rations than her own countrymen that were suffering in Nazi occupation, right? She chose not to eat, and so obviously there was no way she was going to recover. So despite dying, she left her legacy uh, through her scattered notes and her journals, and she talked about her journey with God. And she concluded that there are two great forces that rule the universe. One is gravity, and the other is grace. Gravity causes one's body to be attracted to other bodies so that it continually enlarges by taking in more and more of the universe. Something like this, same force operates in human beings. We also want to expand. We also want to acquire. We want to grow, to become more significant. We desire to become like lowercase gods, right? Will also says, uh, she says in this quote, uh, that we humans operate by laws as fixed as Newton's laws. Quoting her, she says, all the natural motions of the soul are controlled by laws analogous or comparable to those of physical gravity. Grace is the only exception. Most of us remain trapped in gravitational field of extreme self-exaltation about me, 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 it's about me and becoming like God, so to say. And thus we fill up all the fissures or all the cracks through which grace may pass. And as I asked earlier, if grace is so amazing, why do we as a church not share this? Why do we not show more of it? I want to ask my last question. Um, What does a grace-filled Christian look like? Or actually, even better, what what, or how does a grace-filled Christian look? I believe that in our Christian life, It isn't based on rules and regulations, but rather it's a way of seeing. We can't escape the forces of spiritual gravity when we see ourselves as sinners who can't please God by any way of self-improvement or self-uplifting. Only when we see ourselves this way, we can turn to God for grace. We can see that God loves us despite our defects and our issues. But we also escape the forces of spiritual gravity when we see that it's not just us, but it's people around us that are suffering. Going through the same thing. Our neighbors, our communities. When we start to see in different lenses, right, that we are all sinners, loved by God, that's when things change. You see, the simple answer to this question of what or how does a graceful Christian look is this a graceful Christian looks at the world through grace tinted lenses. So if you have your Bibles, can you turn to Matthew chapter 7? Uh, We're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. And I, of course, I always have it on the screen. uh, So if you're not feeling it, it'll be on the screen. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. And this is what the Bible says. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who uh, who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. I think this is interesting. I know this is kind of random. But it's really interesting when you look at the response that Jesus says or the phrase, I never knew you. Because it really sticks out. Like If you read that, that's kind of harsh. Right? Jesus didn't say, you never knew me. Or you didn't know the Father. He says, I never knew you. Perhaps the message we can take from this is that we need to make ourselves known to the Father. Okay? This is not saying that God doesn't know who we are. Yes, God knows who we are. But maybe we need to make ourselves known to Him. Okay? So we as Christians, we say that we know God. But I want to break the news to you that even Satan knows God. Right? A lot of people know God, but does God know us? I know this sounds weird. Of course, the obvious answer, like I said, God, of course, knows who you are. But you see, good works are not enough. Prophesying in his name, driving out demons, performing miracles, right? Having a relationship with God requires us to put our guards down. It's not about the appearance of what we do as Christians. It's not necessarily about the works that we do. We have to be transparent, right? You see, when I was growing up in the home, uh, I wasn't very—I uh, wasn't a very happy camper in the home that I grew up in. Um, it wasn't a very happy home necessarily. I remember many nights when my parents would fight all the time. They would argue, or sometimes my sibling, my sisters, would always fight. You know, during that time of the month, uh, it was just—you know—it was chaotic for me living at home. Uh, so things for me were not very happy, right? But then every weekend, I thought this was so weird. They would fight throughout the week, and then every weekend we'd go to church, and then everything just seemed alright. Everything seemed fine. Everything was like good. Like nothing had happened. You see, this had its pros and cons. I'm not gonna lie. Right at first, I was like, wow. Like church, church is the solution to fix fighting parents. Like, bring them to church and they'll stop fighting, right? Oh, if my sisters are fighting, just bring them to church on the weekend and everything will be okay. So I thought that was great, right? But as I got older, I realized that this was a facade. This was fake. This was a mask, right? I hated this so much because it bothered me. Thinking about what are these people coming to church acting like they're the greatest things on earth, like everything is fine. I wanted to have genuine happiness as I was growing up, not just some kind of mask that I would put on once a week uh, for other people to see. You know, as I've studied about grace quite a bit now, as we talked about in the sermon series. I realized that as I looked through the world with grace-tinted lenses, the pre okay, the thing that we need for grace is imperfection. Or in other words, what we need is brokenness. Right? It is through our dependence on God that we can give God glory. When we are dependent on God, that's when grace can come through. We have to realize and accept that we are imperfect, that we are incomplete that we are weak and that we are mortal and when we realize and accept this we can escape this force of gravity and receive grace it's only when this happens when we truly when we can truly draw closer to god god is closer to the sinner than the saint which kind of sounds weird right but i'm going to explain with this example so um, if we had a rope here from one end of the, the chapel to the other, okay, it's like God is holding each person with a string, right? By a string. So when we sin, or when we acknowledge how we are weak, sinful, and broken, okay, in essence, we are cutting that string, right? Okay? Think about it that way. So God is on one end, okay, and I'm over here holding this rope. I sinned. Rope cut, right? But then... What God does is he shows grace. He comes, takes that string that's broken, right, in two pieces, and he ties it up. Which ultimately, what that does is, it draws you a little closer to God. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah? You think of, just think of this long rope. Cut, tie. Cut, tie. Cut, tie. Right? With every string that we cut, when every time we acknowledge the fact that we are broken, weak, we are full of sin... God keeps drawing us closer and closer to him. And I think that's such a beautiful picture. Okay? So hopefully by this point, I hope you realize and understand that, yes, our churches may be filled with ungrace. But it's because we are so thirsty and so needy for grace. Right? We are a church that yearns for this grace as well. We as a church must acknowledge and accept the fact that we are broken weak people. We are all on this path to recovery and we're all in a relationship with God here in this church. Gravity tempts us to believe that we can make our own, our own path, our own will. But grace tells us it isn't about what we can do. It's about what God has already done for us. Let me say that again. Okay? Gravity tempts us okay, to believe that we can make our own will. We can make our own path. But grace tells us that it isn't about what we can do. It's about what God has already done for you. Our church should be a place for people who feel terrible about themselves, right? That's what church should be about. That should be the requirement for coming to church, okay? For me, it's disappointing to think, uh, and it hurts me a lot to think that church is a place where perfect people come, so they say, right? And it's not true, and it should never be true. And I'll say that all the time. God loves the humble person, right? The person that comes weak and willing to be used, whenever, you know, whatever that makes us feel superior to others, or whatever tempts us to show a sense of superiority to others, I'm sorry to tell you, that's not grace, that's gravity, right? And we don't need more of that in our churches. We need open, broken vessels for people to come for grace to fill our lives. You see, when we look at the life of Jesus, it's interesting, because we see that he hangs out with two different groups of people, right? The sinners and then the so-called saints, right? But I think He preferred, or I'm pretty sure, he preferred the company of the sinners much more than those saints. Why? It's because the sinners were honest with themselves, right? They were real with themselves. They had no baggage other than the fact that they were broken and they were willing to listen. Jesus could deal with that. And I think he could deal with that much better, honestly, right? If you look at the Pharisees or these saints, right, they judged Jesus. They put up a guard. Right? Oh, I'm superior. I have things right. I'm better. I'm perfect. And they tried to trap Jesus right, with the law. You see, it hurts and bothers me today to think that the church that we have created is a culture of perfection and being good and okay at church. Right? I strongly feel that this mentality that we have is destroying young people in our churches, destroying the, the, the environment that we have here. You know, I used to have a lot of friends that were not part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Growing up in Alaska, a small community, um, and they would always, you know, I'd invite them to church, but they would always say this. They would always be like, bro, Tim, like, I, I just can't. And, I, you know, I'd always ask, like, oh, like, why is it, like, are you busy? Like, oh, we're not busy. It's just, church is, it's like, it's for, like, people that are good. Like, I've, I've done too many wrong things in my life. Right? I've, I've already been drinking. Like I've, you know, I'm in high school, but I drink. Like I smoke, but I, I can't go. Like if I go, they're going to judge me. Right? If that's what people are seeing in our churches, man, we have something terribly wrong. Right? And it bothers me so much to think that those friends of mine were not willing to come to church because they felt like church was a place for perfect people. You see, the church is a place for the sick, not the whole. Now, I used to follow my father around a lot when I was growing up, being the only son uh, with a bunch of my sisters. Uh, but my father would always go to these halfway houses and these um, addiction recovery centers uh, to help people out. So he, he was always about like, going and meeting these people and helping them get back on their feet. Um, and he always was looking for people that needed some work or just kind of like support that were on the road to recovery. And so I always had the opportunity to go and sit in and see what they would do at these places, right? Halfway houses, addiction recovery centers, um, AA meetings and whatnot. And they gave me a book, uh, n- not because I was one of them, but they gave me a book and they were giving me basic rules as I was there, just kind of you know, do's and don'ts. But one of the things that stood out to me was this. Um, there were two things, okay? The members needed to have one, radical honesty, and two, radical dependence. They were required to always say, "Hi, my name is blah blah blah, and I'm an alcoholic." Right? They had to say that. They could never say like, "Oh like, hi, my name is Tim, and I've been driving for 20 years." Like, they were never allowed to say that. Okay? It always had to be identifying their weakness. They always had to say, "Hi, I'm whatever, and I'm an alcoholic." Right? They had to be completely 100 percent honest with themselves, and they had to acknowledge their weakness, but then they also had to show their dependence on something higher than them, right? Whether it be God or on a fellow member, someone that had their thing together. Openly, they would ask God, so this is a Christian place, but they would ask God for forgiveness and strength to overcome the very problems that they faced. And they would ask their fellow members to support that. So when I look back at that, when I think about the times that I visited those places, I can't help but see that this is the environment that allows grace to flow freely in that community. It's like grace on tap, right? And I think this is why people struggle so much with coming to a church, right? It's because we've created an environment that doesn't supply grace like that. Right? We get so caught up with the image, the way that we look, the way that we present ourselves to church, the way that we do things at church, that we don't allow grace to work. If we as a church could only realize how weak and broken we were, that we need to build this culture of new culture of grace. Man, what a difference would that make. Right? When I look at the life of Jesus, I sometimes marvel and wonder at how tender he was and how he dealt with these people that were so different than the norm. Right? It makes me ashamed sometimes to think like, like how quickly I am to judge people. Right? People that are different than me, that look different, that smell different, that, you know, that act differently. But when I read about the life of Jesus Christ and his interactions... I just can't help but be ashamed of the way that I deal with people, too. You know, we talked about before uh, in a few of my sermons, we talked about in the Gospel of John Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman, right, at the well. She had multiple husbands. um, She, you know, just terrible, terrible, like, background. She was ostracized by her community. Jesus could have easily simply pointed out the mess and left her at that. Right? She could have, he could have just said, "Stream your life out, like what you're doing is wrong, you know. but essentially what Jesus was saying to the person, to the Samaritan woman, she was like, he pretty much sensed, lady, I sense that you are very thirsty. And then she, he goes on to tell her that the water she's drinking will never satisfy the thirst that she's looking for. And then he offers a living water to quench that thirst forever. You see, that's the kind of spirit that I want to challenge all of us here today to have. When we encounter someone that's totally different than who we are, that maybe we see them doing something wrong, they're morally wrong, or something that we just don't approve of. We need to tell ourselves this. Rather than judging them, we need to see that person say, this must be a very thirsty person. This must be a person searching for grace. So when we change the lens that we look at, When we look through and we change that lens and we see people as simply people that are searching and thirsty for the grace that God has to offer, then the whole game changes. We no longer see people who are are as evil or people that that are simply terrible or or sinners or whatever. We start to see these people as people that simply need God's grace. And there's no category to what grace is. Grace teaches us this. Grace teaches us that God loves because who God is, not because who we are. So I want to, as we close up now, I know it's been, we talk a lot. Uh, but as we close off this series, I want to tell you the story behind the classic hymn of Amazing Grace. So it was written by name of uh, John Newton, uh, 1725. Uh, he died in 1807. Uh, you may have known him as just a songwriter, uh, but he was also a pastor, came. Okay? Or maybe you didn't even know that. Uh, all he was trying to write was a hymn for his New Year's service. right? That's all he was doing. He had already a scripture for his sermon, uh, and it was found in First Chronicles 17, when King David is looking back at his life and he asks God, Who am I, O Lord, that you have brought me here? And that was kind of the point of his sermon. But if you didn't know, John Newton uh, was a slave trader before he became a minister, before he became a pastor, and he was, notori- he was known for his notorious antics, right? He had foul language, uh, his work as a captain of a slave trade uh, boat by the name of Greyhound, right? He was just a terrible guy, he had a reputation. But there was a night when he called out to God in the midst of this deadly storm that almost took his life, and he begged God for a chance at life. Now, the change didn't happen right away. It didn't happen immediately. It was something that happened. It didn't happen overnight on that day. It took him a long time before he left that life behind. But it was many years later that he started his life as a pastor, even fighting against slavery, right? A complete 180-degree change. So when he penned the words of amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You see, John Newton wasn't trying to write like some hit track, right? He truly meant these words with all his heart. You see, grace is truly an amazing thing. And I hope that through this sermon series uh, that I've talked about, even if it's your first time here hearing it today, that you see grace in a different light. That you are encouraged by the grace that we potentially can show to our world. Right? And it's a beautiful thing to us as Christians. And so I hope and I pray that we as a church, as individuals, can begin to revive this culture that grace calls out or that God calls us and shows us uh, to those in the world that we live.